Coaches, welcome to Keep Your Pads Down, where it is officially summer break for most of us. Chance to relax and spend some time with our families because that 2019 season will be here before you know it. I got to tell you, I'm really excited about today's episode because what you're going to hear from our guest today is relevant for all football coaches. So if you're a running backs coach tuning in for the first time, hey, you and your advisor, y'all are welcome. O-line guys, bring your box of Little Davies and y'all listen too. Today we're talking to longtime Texas high school football official, Mike Wise. Mike has been officiating for 28 years and been a trainer for Tasso for 15 years and been the director of training for the last four and is currently the rules interpreter for football. Today, Mike is going to talk to us about the new rules being implemented for the 2019 season and clarify some existing rules that we as coaches sometimes get wrong. Mike also gives some great advice to coaches about how to work effectively with officials and what we can do to help with the shortage of quality officials in our game today. Our conversation today is only part one of a two-part conversation that will continue with another episode later on this summer. We'll go live around the time we get ready to start fall camp. So once again, coaches, thank you so much for tuning in. And we can promise that no one will yell at you to get back, and there will be no flags thrown today. So sit back and enjoy episode number 14 of KYPD. Mike, you have the honorable distinction of being the first non-coach on the podcast, but I know there'll be plenty of coaches tuning into this episode interested in hearing what you had to say about rule changes and points of emphasis for this upcoming season. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Well, thank you for having us. The uh, Texas Association of Sports Officials, uh, we're anxious to get the word out to coaches and communicate with them as best we can. So when you offered this up, we jumped on it. Well, I'm so glad you did, and I got to preface this also. I, I I very well or very likely will will refer to you or call you coach when I'm asking you a question. So if I do that, I want to apologize beforehand. But I'm going to guess that that's probably not the worst thing that you've been called by a football coach uh, in your career as an official. You would be right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's jump in and and just talk to us a little bit about your history with the game of football in general. Well, I started as a kid, of course, playing youth league and then played in high school and uh, played for a year at the University of Maine before I uh, enlisted in the Army, joined the Army. And while I was there, we had a lot of inter-service football, so I was able to play for three years there. But then once I went back to college, that was the end of my playing days. As I went on in my, my life and got older, more mature, started having kids, had an opportunity when I was assigned to uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, the high school there would needed an assistant coach and they were willing to let me just come over in the afternoons after I got off work. So uh, I was an assistant coach at a high school there in Puerto Rico during the four years I was there. And also they uh, play youth league football there from January to uh, May. So I had my own youth league team. Well, let me ask you about that because I I didn't know they played football in Puerto Rico. So is that a, is the game? Does the game have a strong foothold down there? Oh yeah, it does. I was shocked when we got there that they they played. It's essentially it's a year round sport because of the weather. You know the weather is always beautiful. So in the fall they have what we would call it high school football. The reality is there was one American high school there. It was on an army base, a U.S. Army base. Uh-huh. That's where that's where I was and where my kids went. And then all the other teams that played in this league were club teams. And they, uh, they were kids from private schools for the most part around uh, the San Juan, Puerto Rico area. So that was the fall season. And then in January they had youth league and youth league started, uh, I it was like five or six years old and went through, I think age 17. So they had all different levels of, youth league football playing from January to May. And then in May they had what they called semi-pro football, which was just adult football and they played in the summertime. Okay. Wow. That's really interesting. So from there, uh, again, you grew up playing, uh, played a little bit in college and and then also had, had some experience coaching. So then what made you want to make the jump to becoming an official? Well, when we got back to Texas, I wanted to stay involved with football, but my work, uh, work 
then was not going to permit it. I wasn't going to be able to be an assistant. Plus, my kids were going to public high school in uh, Del Rio. And, you know, the Texas law, you can't just take an assistant from off the street. Right. I had to be right. a teacher and all that. So I just couldn't be an assistant uh, coach. So I started looking. And I also had had experiences as a coach with what I thought was some pretty uh, weak officiating and I thought I could do better. So I said, let me try that. I got you. So what's, what's that process like? And I'm sure it was different then than it is now, but, and we're, and we're going to get into this toward really more towards the end of this episode, but what was that process like of, you know, getting into a get becoming an official training, all those things. What was that like? Well, getting in was simple because there's such, there was then and still is today a great, need for officials so getting in was easy uh initially because i was uh, in del rio i became part of the san angelo chapter of officials went to the training with them and uh, did all my sub varsity games there in del rio all the junior high and jv they let me stay there in del rio for that and then the varsity games would be wherever the san angelo chapter worked around the san angelo area uh, so had their training, plus the Texas Association of Sports Officials, TASO, has an incredible uh, training program for all its officials, especially in the summertime, clinics all over the place. And so that's I was able to do that and, and become more proficient in it than just having the experience of being on the field also made me a little bit more proficient. Okay. So as, you're, as a young official, what were some some lessons that you learned pretty early on or maybe some bumps in the road that you encountered as an official just starting out? Well, the, I wasn't prepared, I guess, for the level of criticism that you get, and especially as a brand new guy, you're just trying to learn it. Uh, that was a little difficult at first to understand. Uh, it took me some time to understand what was going on there, why I was being criticized so much. And I was just trying to, to learn what to do. Um, I find, after a while, I realized they weren't really criticizing me as much as they were criticizing the uniform and, and what I represented. So I had, I learned not to take it personal anymore. And it was fine after that. Well, and, and I'm sure that's extremely difficult for a young official starting out because it's not like you can turn to that coach and say, Hey coach, cut me some slack here. I'm just getting started. All right. Because that's oh, no. you, you really and, can't admit that you, hey this is my first game or this is my first season uh, that's not going to help you out any so really you just have to wear it and and learn on the fly I would imagine I've never officiated a game yeah. before but I would imagine that's how it is. Well, one of the things we always say is we have a perfect storm because it's, especially at the sub varsity level uh -huh. uh, you have for the most part you have newer officials. You have less experienced coaches. You have less experienced players. So you have three things there that added together creates all kinds of uh, difficulty. So at the sub-varsity level, it's really, really difficult. And, of course, the varsity coaches are a little bit more experienced. They, they expect everybody that's out there to be perfect from the beginning and you can get better from there. So that was a little bit more of a challenge. But uh, early on in my career, on a varsity game, I had a, I was part of a crew that had a, a huge, a huge error and, uh, the crew handled it poorly. And of course I was the, the youngest guy in the crew, but I saw how it was handled. And that for me was like my, uh, my Waterloo. I decided after that, I was never going to be in a position where I didn't know the rules well enough, uh, to get us out of it. And that's what happened there. None of the guys on the, crew knew the rules well enough and we ended up in basically a fiasco yeah well let me ask you about that so when when officials are first becoming uh they're, they're first learning how to be an official what's their training process like Do, is it really on them to to seek out those rules and read through a rule book is are they handed a rule book and say hey uh, read this from cover to cover or, or is that something they're walked through tested on how does that yeah. work each chapter in the state has its own new member training program. Okay. And some are a little bit more intense than other ones. Uh, typically, well, they always give them the rule book, of course, but they don't tell them to read it from cover to cover. Uh, and they go through each week, they'll go through another part of the rule book and they expect them to look at that part of the rule book. And this is what's going on for the brand new guy, first year official. This is what's going on from 
July into August as they get close to early September when the first sub varsity games start. Uh, and of course they have veteran officials with them. Uh, the scrimmage, as soon as the scrimmages start in August, we try to get those guys out to a field uh, with the more experienced officials and take them through things and then talk through, okay, you saw what just happened there. Uh, why didn't you flag it or why did you flag it? And, uh, and so that's how we get them in their first year. Uh, we don't expect anybody's going to learn the rule book in their first year of officiating. It's probably the most complicated rule book in all of sports. Right. Uh, so it, it takes some time to actually learn it. So each chapter has its own new member training program. Plus, the state at the state, we have a clinic a state meeting each year, usually in the end of July. And we have uh, sessions specifically for newer members. We bring them in and sit them down and go through things to bring them up to a little bit higher level of proficiency. And then each week during the summer, there are usually two to three clinics around the state in different different towns put on by the chapters that are in those towns. And they can go to the one, you know, just in their town, or they can go to any of them they want and travel around the state if they want and hear more about the game and the rules and the, the mechanics of officiating. Right. Well, in, in a lot of ways, it's, a, it's like a coach, you know. Uh, when a coach is breaking into that profession, there's some instruction that's given to them, but a lot of it is is dependent upon that coach seeking out that information and taking it upon themselves to be disciplined enough to study it and and learn on their own and be comfortable with whether it be a new defense or offensive scheme. And so it sounds like that's really what's going on with officials. Yep, and you're, and I'm sure the same thing happens with coaches. Some are are obviously more dedicated to it than others and spend more time trying to get it right and, and trying to learn it. But uh, yeah, we hope for the most part, most of them are studying as much as they can and then talking to the more experienced officials and watching. We have video now. We didn't used to have that. We got a lot more video now. So for us, it's been a real godsend for training. Looking back or looking back on your officiating career, uh, you're actually not on the field now. But when you are on the field and you're refing those games, I'm sure you're a part of some pretty intense, memorable games. So share with us some stories of some memorable moments or memorable games that you were a part of as an official. Well, obviously, everybody wants to go to the championship, right? So right. in 2015, I got my one state championship game, and that was uh, Brock versus Cameron Yo. Uh-huh. A state championship game. That was when... UIL was trying to do the championships in uh, Houston's yes. reliant stadium. Yes, and that's right. So that was a great experience to be there. But the two teams uh, were in, uh, playing incredible football, just really high level. And uh, it was one of those deals where uh, Cameron Yo was ahead and really had control of the game, it seemed, for the first half. And then near the end of the first half, had a terrible injury to their star running back. And it was just a very, very freak injury. And, uh, it, of course, he, w- he was not able to come back in the game. And uh, Brock turned it around in the second half and ended up winning. It was memorable, of course, because it was a championship game, but because we had a comeback involved. And we had a couple of plays in the game that were real, uh, what we would call nut cruncher plays. And right. uh, after we looked at the video, we realize we got them right and so that's always a good feeling to know you got them right 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 of course brownwood stephenville that's a huge rivalry and that was in the late 90s when i was still a young official somehow i managed to get in that game and just that was my first experience in a real big time texas high school football uh, event it was it was i'll never forget it i'm curious with those with games like that uh, you know, coaches are keyed up, players are keyed up, fans are keyed up, everybody's on edge. Is it, is it the same with the officials? Is there pressure within that officiating crew to, especially when it's a big game, whether it's a rivalry game or a championship game, to make sure you get it right? Oh, yeah, it, it's huge. I mean, we knew how significant it was, but we also knew how many people were watching. We knew that everything we did was going to be put under a microscope. And uh, so we we tried to take our time. We we actually had a targeting call in the game, and you know how controversial those are. Oh yeah. But we came together, and uh, one official, the official that threw the flag, 
told me what he had. The Another official from the sideline came in and said, no, this is what I saw. We discussed it, and I elected to wave the flag off based on that input from the sideline official. And, of course, you know, we couldn't wait to see the video. And then when we saw the video, we realized we were right. that It was not a targeting call. Just from where the back judge was standing, it, it obviously did look like a targeting. But right. uh, the, the line judge had a better view, and we went with him. And it was not, so we, took, we waved it off. That was a huge, a huge, uh, huge call for us. And we, had, we actually did eject a kid from uh, – that was uh, for another, but it was – sort of a targeting thing but people were shocked that we would eject anybody in the state championship game but he went up to a kid after a play and force forcibly hit his helmet with his helmet right you know helmet bump and so we ejected him for that unsportsmanlike conduct act well i'm sure in moments like that that's one of those things you just you hate that the kid did that because you don't want to be the bad guy in that situation and and you know in that moment you have to protect the players on the field and knowing that that's going to be a, a really impactful uh, call to make, but it's the yeah, right we, call. But it's the right would, call. We would normally let a lot of things go in a, in a game like that, but something like that where he used his helmet on another kid's helmet, we didn't think we had a, an option, so right. we, we didn't let it go. Right. Well, it seems to me that officials, or maybe the goal of officiating crew, and this is from an outsider, uh, from a coach's perspective, that. When, when for for y'all, when you're done with a game, you know, and you're sitting around talking, that you can define a good game as it's kind of like when the offensive line has a great game or the deep snapper has a great game. You don't really notice so much. Uh, I know in, in my time as a coach, you know, when the when we feel like the officiating was really good, you kind of at the after the game's over, you're like, hey, the officiating crew was really good tonight. You know, that was it was a clean game. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot of a, a lot of calls that were just you know nitpicky and things like that. They made some calls that they needed to make, and and I'm sure yeah, I'm sure that's our perspective. Maybe the other sideline saw it all completely different, but uh, is that correct? And, and kind of like y'all would like to just be there and be a part of the fabric of the game, but not be noticed. Well, that's what we we try to teach the guys early on. Nobody pays to come in the game to see the officials, so. Uh, you're not part of the show. You're just out there to make sure both teams have an uh, equal, fair uh, opportunity to, to play the game and to win, play to their best ability and, and win if, if they're the better team. We don't want to be a part of, uh, of changing the outcome of a game uh, because of a mistake that we make. We're not, that doesn't mean we're going to hesitate and not make the big call if it needs to be made, but, we don't want to make the big call and have it be wrong. Right, right. Well, as an official, what were some things, or, or, or as you as you got into it, what were some things that you loved about officiating? Because again, for me, that seems like a job that I would not want, and and probably because, well, just being from the perspective of a coach and seeing how how offici- officials are treated, and and you know, full disclosure. I'm I'm responsible. I've been responsible for some of that ridicule uh, from a from a coach to an official. So, what is it that you love about officiating? For me, it's it's a. I know this sounds odd, but it's a stress relief if you can believe it. That, uh, I can't believe that. That's 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 almost unbelievable. And there's probably but, a lot of guys because, that, that find that hard to believe. But, but what happens is, whether I'm studying or actually on the field officiating, I'm so focused on what I'm doing that I can forget the normal concerns and issues of career and life and just focus on the game and the officiating at that moment. So when I first got into officiating, I had a very stressful, um, I was in a very stressful career and it allowed me to escape from that for a period of time and just focus on, on the game and on football. And so it was, a, I saw it as a stress reliever. So some guys golf, some guys fish, and you officiate football games. <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, just being able to escape from from your, the stresses of your job and, and things like that. I have to believe that it, it really takes a lot of mental focus because you have to be present the entire time in that football game. There's not a moment where you can catch yourself sleeping. So that's got to be mentally exhausting. I, mean, I would imagine more than physically, you have to be exa- just, just mentally exhausted after a game's over. <laughs> yeah, come in the locker room sometime and see and see how wiped out we are uh, physically and mentally. Uh, 
and then some of the some of the conversations that we have in the vehicle on the way back home after the game as a crew we're as silly as kids with some of the stuff we talk about because we basically were just wiped out right exactly well, I, I can't imagine yeah we talked about things that you love about officiating what are some things that you dislike well i mean the, the worst part for me has been when you have to deal with fans or, or coaches who they give you the impression that their viewpoint or their knowledge of the rules is the only thing that could possibly be correct and that any other viewpoint is illegitimate or wrong. I mean, it's the same for us. We don't want to think we're the final authority. We want to believe that maybe somebody else knows something more than we do, but there are some more fans than coaches, but there are some from of both who, if they say they saw something or somebody on their crew and their uh, staff saw something, then that's what actually happened. And more times than not, when you look at the video, it's not what happened because especially the head coach, the head coach is trying to look at so many things and he may not even be looking at the point of attack and somebody on the staff tells him, you know, something happened out here. And he'll tell us this is what happened. And we know he didn't see it because he was looking at the point of attack to watch the play. But he's he just insists that that's what happened and won't, won't listen to anything and basically thinks that you're lying to him. and gives you the right. impression that you're lying to him. And right. we're not doing that. We're just telling you this is what we saw. I totally understand. And, and I'm sure that is frustrating. And I'm glad that you said fans because I guess that's one, maybe the common ground that, that coaches and officials can share in is, is, is our distaste for the armchair quarterback sitting in the stands. We all wish we could tune those guys out. If, if we do have some common ground, it would be our distaste for the, uh, the commentary coming out of the bleachers sometimes. It's, it's terrible. And it seems that it's even worse at the lower <laughs> levels, the sub varsity levels, Yeah, you know, and, and even the youth league football, which is a whole nother story, but yeah. Uh, because in sub varsity, they're much closer to the field. Oh yeah, and sometimes you're really concerned about your safety because just the way things are set up. Right. But uh, yeah, it's they are the most difficult thing to deal with. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, now now as we let, let's move into some some rule changes and points of emphasis okay. that you are focusing on for this upcoming season. So discuss those just in general. We'll talk about some things that maybe affect because this is a podcast that focuses on the defensive line. And so we can talk okay. about some of those here in a second rules that will affect offense and defensive lines. But let's just talk about in general, what are some some perhaps some new rules that you are going to be putting in or implementing this season for the 2019 season or maybe some things that you're going to be really focusing on this upcoming season. Okay, well, you know, the NCAA, they put, they finalized their major football rule changes uh, in February, and then they get them approved in April. They did that for the 2019 season. Then the UIL has a rules committee that meets that's made up of uh, coaches and the UIL staff, and then there's a couple of um, guys with some officiating experience on it, and then one guy from our association is on it. They meet. And then they decide what UIL exceptions there should be for the year or what should be taken away. So that's all gone on. And we're in the point now where we're starting to train. I would say uh, two couple of major changes. The first one, and this came from the Texas High School Coaches Association. They said that they didn't think targeting was being called enough. They wanted it called more frequently, but they also wanted to be sure that it was being called correctly. Because while they thought it wasn't being called enough, they thought there were also too many times when it was called and it wasn't really targeting. So what they asked for and what the UIL has adopted, and this is different than the NCAA rule, is uh, basically this year there will be two types of targeting in our games. And so this sometimes gets confusing because guys watch games on Saturday, watch the college games. Right. They know we use college rules and they think it should be the same. But for us in Texas high school football this year, uh, we're going to, there's two types of targeting. One, I guess, for lack of a better word, we'll call the simple targeting. And that's where the hit sure looks like it's targeting, but the officials are not absolutely sure that all the required elements to have a targeting foul are there. And so in that case, the penalty is only going to be 15 yards on the automatic first down. 
uh, it will not be an automatic disqualification. Right. The, the coaches thought maybe officials were not flagging because they, they didn't want it. Like you just said earlier, they didn't want to kick a kid out by mistake. So it wasn't being flagged and was being missed. So they asked for that. So we, we that's what uh, the UIL wrote in there. Now, if this player gets flagged twice in a game for that same, let's call that simple targeting, then it's the same as if he had two unsportsmanlike conducts. He'll be disqualified then. Okay. Okay. Now, if he gets flagged for what we're going to call a flagrant targeting, which is where everybody on the field knows it, everybody watching at home knows it, everybody in the stands knows it, uh, 50 drunk guys in a bar watching on TV know it, <laughs> that it was targeting then the ejection will apply on the first the first offense. Okay. Fifteen yard penalty and the disqualification. Yeah, I can just like the rule is now. Well and I can imagine that's a tough thing to call because you don't have the the luxury of going and consulting video like college and NFL guys have. You, you nailed it. And that's that's what happens in colleges. Those college officials and you can watch them as, as an official, we know what they're doing. They will flag anything that's close to targeting, and then they let instant replay fix it if, if it's wrong. Right, right. We, we don't have that. So right. this is a good change for us. Whereas they can be afford to be a little quick on the trigger when it comes to those types of calls, it's really the exact opposite for y'all. Y'all have to really make sure that what you saw was targeting uh, because, you know, that's a very serious penalty. But I, But having those two different levels allows you to call one and say, hey, that may or may not have been, but this is more of like more or less a, a warning. You know, you're, you're one strike. Uh, and so that, I believe that's a good rule and, and can protect the kids, but also set the tone and have have proper uh, repercussions for for that sort of stuff that really needs to be out of our game anyway. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a fast play and happens so quickly. Right. Uh, it's really hard to see it. And if they just dip their head at the last second and make the head the head the head contact, uh, you're not really sure if they did or not. Well, now we can go ahead and flag it and give them the, the 15 yards, and maybe they'll lower their point of aim next time and right and miss that. So that's that's the first major change. Uh, the the second one is, and this will probably the defensive coaches and especially defensive line coaches are going to love this one. Um, they are going to prohibit blindside blockings with forcible contact. Wow. So like the crackback block, the right. guy comes in from the outside, uh, the, the defender doesn't see him coming, and he gets blown up. Just a huge block gets no, blocked into next week. And uh, it, it's a really, really tough block. That's used to be legal, unless of course they went low, and then you had an illegal block below the waist. But that was a different thing. But now, if you have that blindside block, and it involves forcible contact, then it's going to be a personal foul with a 15-yard penalty. Most of the time, you see these are the crackbacks or a peelback block, or even on kickoff or kick or turnover returns when there's right. a return of right. a kick or return of a You see players all over the field and they get oh, yeah. hit from the blind side. It doesn't mean you cannot be blocked from the blind side. You still can be. It just means it can't be what they're saying is forcible. The way that we're going to interpret that is if you're the blocker and you put a shoulder into somebody, that's a forcible block. Right Now, if you do like a basketball screen where you just get in front of them, that's not a forcible block. If you put your hands out in front of you, like outstretch them forward and just uh, give a push with your hands, that's not going to be a forcible block either. So those those kinds would be legal. Even, okay. if it's, even though it's from the blind side, that would still be legal. Right. But if it's a blow-up, forcible contact, blind side, uh, that's going to be a foul. Yeah, I think that's huge, and especially for, like you mentioned, defensive coaches. Uh, for linebackers not having to worry about getting cracked by the slot receiver and sometimes defensive ends. Uh, and, and especially, again, on, you know, the, the, the adage has always been when there's a turno turnover, you better get your head on a swivel because you're going to get peeled back on. And, and so those that, that those kind of plays you're telling me will be are, are going to be out of the game from here on out with this new rule. That's right. 
Uh, well, I, I know. Again, I know that's going to be that's going to be one that that coaches will appreciate. I know we lost a kid in the first round of the playoffs and ended up losing him for the rest of the postseason on a that that exact kind of play. And it was uh, at the time we couldn't do anything about it. And, and but but it was a shame we lost that kid for the rest of the postseason. So it's a good thing that uh, we have something to take care of that going forward. So what else? You know, there's a rule that says on a kickoff return, you cannot, if you're the return team, you cannot have a three-man wedge, like a wedge of three guys, players, shoulder-to-shoulder blocking. Starting this season, you can't even have a two-man wedge. So, again, they're trying to make the kickoff returns a safer safer play. So uh, you can't even have a two-man wedge now. That'll be a foul, uh, like the three-man has been for some time. Right. Well, we don't see we don't see a lot of that. Even the illegal ones, the three man, we don't even see a lot of two man wedges. Right. So. Right. Well, you you, then, you brought it up, so let me ask you about that while we're there. With, with special teams, kickoffs, punt return, things like that, where just th- those plays. Do you see just looking forward? Is that is that part of the game? Special teams is that going to be a part of the game that's sort of phased out uh, in order yeah. to make the game safer? What just just as a uh, in your position, looking forward, what do you think about that? Yeah, the the kickoff part, especially. Uh, there's so much out there, so much movement out there to take kickoffs completely out of the game. I wouldn't be surprised within a couple of years if that happens. There's no longer going to be a kickoff. I don't think they can take the punts out of the game. That's probably going to have to stay for a while. But the kickoffs, they've come up with all kinds of different ideas about how to handle that, you know, uh, give the team the ball in the 25, give it to them on 30, uh, different ways of doing it. But uh, I think they was discussed this year, but there wasn't really any move or push to go there. So as far as the NCAA goes, they didn't go there yet. Yeah. I, I coach the kickoff uh, on our team, and I always tell our guys, they look, guys, you better enjoy this because one day you're going to tell your kids – how you were the hit man on the kickoff team and you used to run down and tackle people full speed and they're not going to believe you and you're going to have to break out the tape because it's not going to be a part of the game much longer. Uh, Just, just looking at the, the way that that the rules have changed with the touchback and really encouraging the returners just to take a knee because they can take a knee wherever, wherever that, wherever they catch that ball or whatever. So that's, that's probably is not, does not come as a surprise for, for most coaches that that, is going to be an aspect of the game that's that's going to be uh, done away with. Uh, so, what else can you tell us about okay. rule changes or points of emphasis for this next season? Well, another another change that just you probably want to know is out there. Uh, you know, there were, there were some extra period overtime games. Uh, we've had them in high school, and they've certainly had them in college. That sometimes go into the fifth, sixth, seventh overtime period. Yes, A and M and LSU is what comes to mind yep. for most of us. Listening. They, they say that it puts too much stress on the players. The games are too long that way. It's probably a lot of it's because it takes too much TV time. But um, anyway, they they wanted to reduce that, so they made a rule change this year. Uh, that will take place starting in the fifth. If they get to the fifth overtime period, instead of starting on a 25-yard line, uh, each team will start on the three-yard line, and you'll run basically a point after touchdown plays. Okay. So you'll get a you run one play, and uh, if you score, you score. If you don't score, then the other team uh, gets their chance to run one play. Wow. Wow, and and that'll be for this all the rest of the periods until you can break the tie. Wow, and from that and, and then at that point, you know, maybe you could have the coaches, the head coaches, come out and Indian leg wrestle, or uh, you know, maybe uh, I don't know, forty yard dash, something like that, maybe to settle for it. That. Yeah. <laughs> one uh, one last change I'll throw out. There. Okay. Uh, the U, the UIL for years has had an exception to the NCAA's 10-second subtraction rule. In the NCAA, there are certain points in the game inside the last minute of a half when things happen like a penalty or a helmet comes off when uh, they can elect to have a 10-second subtraction from the game clock. So let's say, for example, the offense needs a score to win. There's 15 seconds on the clock when they snap. And the clock's running down. The quarterback's out there, realizes he's not going to find an open receiver. So he just intentionally grounds the pass because he knows, okay, that's going to stop the clock. Uh, I'll still have five or six seconds left. 
and I can get my team up there and we can run another play. Right. Well, now uh, in the NCAA, you can't do that because in addition to the, the penalty for the, the intentional grounding, they have the 10 second runoff. Well, there's only eight seconds left on the clock. So with the 10 second runoff, you take those eight seconds off. They do not get another play. Oh, wow. Wow. So they had that exception for years. But the UIL decided this year we'll we'll go ahead and follow the rules. So right. all the 10-second subtraction rules are going to apply. And, and we're going to be talking to the officials at length about that this summer. This is going to be very new for them. And for coaches, it, it may be a, a strategy thing because you can elect to have the runoff or not have the runoff. So when the official comes over and asks you for your penalty choice, do you want the penalty or not? A part of that is going to be, do you want that 10 second runoff? Wow. Yeah. And that's, those are really the major changes for this year. Okay. And, and I'm, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems like each year there's something that maybe a rule, the rule that's already been in place, but something that, that officials are really going to be looking at closely or emphasizing or paying attention to. I think a couple years ago, I know this because uh, I'm always, I'm horrible about getting onto the field and I, you know, I have to have the kids pull me back or whatever. It's not, I just lose track. And, and, and so that was, you know, something that I, str- I still struggle with. Are there anything or, or is there a rule or a certain aspect that, that you guys are going to be really focusing on this year uh, to make the game safer, to make the game flow more efficiently? We're, we're going to continue working on that sideline control that you just mentioned. Uh, we have a much better, handle on it now than we did a couple of years ago so we want to stay with it we don't want to slack off of it so there'll be emphasis on that also the new targeting thing uh, because it's a such a new change for us there's going to be quite a bit of emphasis there and uh, the unsportsmanlike conduct it continues to be an emphasis they have a much bigger problem with it in the ncaa than we have at our level but we want to we want to uh, the UIL and the High School Coach Association both have asked us to stay on top of the unsportsmanlike conduct, so we're going to do that as well. Let's talk about <laughs> rules that will directly affect offense and defensive line play. What about blocking below the waist, cut blocks? What's what yeah. uh, is that? Is that something that's changing, or, or what? What about that? The only the only change this year is that in that ten yard zone where the defense is allowed to block below the waist, five yards either side of the line of scrimmage. It used to be that they could they could be blocking from the side. It didn't matter. It didn't have to be from the front like it does for the offensive guys. But now even the defensive blocks that are low inside that 10-yard zone will have to be from the front. And we use the term 10 to 2. I don't know if you've heard that term before or not, the 10 to 2. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with huh? that. Probably should explain that. And the block below the waist rule, there are times when blocking below the waist is permitted, but it has to be from the front. And from the front has been defined as if you were to put a clock, think of a clock, for example, right. from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock from the, from the person being blocked. So you put your arms out like at 45 degree angle each way. That is the 10 to 2 zone. Right. The, the low block has to come from in there, can't come from the side. And it's the same now for the defenders inside that 10-yard belt where they're allowed to legally block below the waist. Uh, it has to be 10 to 2. Okay. Now, the the other block and below the waist rules, they didn't make changes to them this year. Uh, we're told probably next year because next year, the way they, they do the rule changes is, in the even-numbered years, those are the big rules changes years. And in the odd-numbered years, they only make really safety, major safety-related changes. So we're in an odd-numbered year. They dealt with safety things. Next year, probably going to see some changes to block and blow the waste to try to make it easier to coach, easier to play, and easier to officiate because it's really difficult still. Oh, I'm sure. You know, and as as – as a, as a defensive line coach, you know, we're always looking for, you know, one of those those calls that, that I know worries me and that has is, is directly affected games that I've coached in is for a kid to be engaged with an offensive lineman and, that, you know, let's say he's engaged with a guard and the center cuts him. And I know that's against the rules, but that's – and that's an extremely difficult 
call to make sometimes for those officials because, you know, it's hard to see in there and there's a lot of bodies and things moving around. Uh, and so I know that's a rule that, and those are, that's, that's a part of the game that, that we really have to be careful with. Do you see that being something that's uh, eventually phased out altogether? Yeah, there for years now, there have been a significant number of college coaches that do not want to have block and blow the waves at all. But they get, basically, they get uh, pushed back on by the service academies and by some of right. the smaller colleges who say they cannot compete with uh, Alabama's and the Clemson's if they're not allowed to block low. Yeah. So they yeah. stayed in there. They've tried to tweak it every way they can. Uh, but it just, it's still too difficult to officiate and we miss things just like you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Uh, we, we miss things too much. And if they were just told you can't go at low at all, it'd make it a lot easier. Right. So let me ask you this, uh, since we're talking about offense and defensive line play, uh, I know there are some defensive line coaches and just defensive coaches in general who want some clarification on this offensive linemen being downfield on RPOs. What can you tell me about that? What's the rule there? Clarification there on that? Because I know that drives defensive coaches crazy when, you know, on a run pass option play, when you got offensive linemen, you know, seven or eight yards downfield and, and they're, you know, the quarterback's throwing the ball past the line of scrimmage uh, on a run pass option read. So what what can you tell me about that? Well, that's a foul. <laughs> the, the rule is clear. If the, it doesn't matter what the offensive play is, if they actually end up passing the ball and the ball goes beyond the line of scrimmage, the lineman cannot be more than three yards downfield until the ball is released. Now, it doesn't mean that, the, that they have to wait till the ball gets to the neutral zone. As soon as it leaves the quarterback's hand, then they yeah. can be beyond yeah. three yards. But yeah. if you're if they're seven or eight yards, and then a quarterback decides to pass it, and he's passing yeah. downfield. That's that's really a no-brainer. Should be an easy call. We have a lot of guys that are watching that. that right. Um, if that's being missed, uh, we need to know about it because that's uh, that's definitely a foul. Well, there you go, offensive line coaches. Y'all chill out on that and keep your guys within three yards from the line of scrimmage if you're going to be running RPOs. So that's good to know that we can – that's one of those things we can uh, – if you're seeing that on film, I guess, as a defensive coach, you can bring that up to the official – pregame and just say, hey, here's what we're seeing, uh, bring it, bring it, bring that to their attention. Is that correct? Exactly. That's the kind of thing we want to, we like to hear in the pregame is if there are tendencies like that, you know, we see some film as well, and maybe we are, we've already picked up on that or, uh, but if you see it for sure, tell the guys and they'll pay a little extra attention to it. But remember, if, if, if he rolls out like that and then he passes, but he passes to a back who's back there behind the line, right. that's fine. The line right. can be exactly. far downfield. Exactly. Well, so as we're talking about rules that, that maybe you're, could be, I guess, that could prove to be frustrating for coaches, for y'all, what is a rule for you? What is a rule that you often that, – that coaches often get wrong or misinterpret yeah. that you would like to clarify? Oh, oh, the, I think one thing, and I'm really surprised that the number of people that they get confused about this is – they think that defenders are not allowed to contact receivers after they've gone five yards downfield, which is, that's the NFL rule. Yeah, for sure. But that's not yeah. the NCAA rule. So right. it's, it's not the rule in our game. As long as the defender is legally contacting the receiver and he is between the receiver and the goal line, the receiver is going to, and the ball hasn't been thrown yet. The defender can, can block that guy. He can hit him. Yeah. He can have contact. It's in the NFL. He can't once he gets past five yards right and that one we get yelled a lot he's 10 yards downfield he's 15 yards downfield but it's uh five yards yeah that's there's it doesn't matter right that's probably one of them another one is the targeting where some people think because there's a big blow-up block that that's automatically targeting but the rule book is clear it defines what targeting is and just a big block is not targeting. There's some other things that have to be present for it to be targeting. Uh, like it has to be either the attacker is using his helmet or that he's attacking the head or neck area of a defenseless player in order for it to be targeting. Great. Yeah, I know that, that uh, again, those are, uh, you mentioned the pass interference and the, and the contact with the receiver. I know that's, that's probably one that y'all do hear a lot because I hear it a lot you know, coaches arguing about that on both sides of the ball, complaining about that. 
basically, again, what you're telling me is wide receiver coaches quit being a bunch of prima donnas and teach your kids to get off press man coverage. So this is all good stuff for us defensive guys so far. Mike, can you kind of break down to us or for us uh, each official's responsibility and what they're responsible for calling? Because I know every coach has had it as experiences. They see something uh, that they that they want called or that, that wasn't called, and they go to the official on their sideline and they say, hey, that whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Can you kind of break down for us each official's responsibility? So as coaches, we know who's responsible for what and who we need to you know, have the head official talk to or, or whatever, who we need to be talking to? You know, I, I mentioned something called mechanics earlier, officiating mechanics. Uh-huh. We actually have a manual that's about, I don't know, 70 pages long of mechanics that tell every official by position where he's supposed to be, what he's supposed to be doing on each kind of place. So it's pretty involved. If there, If anybody has a specific thing that they want to ask about, who should be calling the chop blocking in the interior line or who should be calling the ineligibles downfield that I can probably help you with. But I mean, just generally, obviously the referee, he's, he's got the, the action back behind the, the line of scrimmage. That's the white hat. Uh, he's really, the quarterback is his baby. He's got to stay with the quarterback most of the time until he gets rid of the ball. And then if he's handing the ball off, he can stay with the ball carrier until it gets to the line of scrimmage. Then you have your two guys on the sidelines. The head linesman, who's the guy with the chains, and then the line judge, who's the guy on the sideline opposite of the chains. They're watching for the forward progress as the ball goes down the field. They're watching for the blocking in front of the ball. Uh, They also are watching if there's a backward pass, they're responsible to know if it was backward or forwards. And then they they follow and keep the four progress as they go down the field. The umpire, that's the big guy right behind the linebackers. He's watching center, two guards and one tackle, one of the tackles mm-hmm. uh, for the interior line blocking. And then once the play develops, that determines what he's going to do. If it's a, if it looks like it's going to be a pass, he comes to get closer to the line of scrimmage so he can tell if any of the linemen are more than three yards downfield. He can help tell us if the quarterback goes across the line before he releases the ball, that sort of thing. And you have your back judge. That's the deep guy back behind the, the free safety. And uh, he's, he's primarily watching receivers as they come downfield to see that they're being contacted legally. And then once the ball's in the air, he's watching the action between the receivers and the defenders, wherever the ball's being thrown. Those two sideline guys, in addition to what they're doing, if it turns out that it's going to be a pass, then they start watching receivers as well on their respective sides of the field to see if they're being contacted legally or not. Well, that's basically a play from scrimmage. Of course, it's different on punts. It's different on right. kickoffs. Right. We go to different positions. So it just depends on the kind of play and what exactly it is that the coach is concerned about as to who should be seeing it. But the easiest thing is, if he doesn't know, is just ask the, the sideline official, hey, who who's watching that guard? Who, who's watching him? Who's watching the, the free safety? And then the guy can tell him. No, I, I think that I think that explanation is really helpful because sometimes we're not really sure who's watching what, and so if we know that this is a team that is going to post and cut a lot, or this is a team that does have they they run these RPOs and their 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 linemen tend to be five or six yards downfield sometimes to know who to talk to. Uh, yeah. and, and who to bring that complaint to and not be chewing out our sideline judge because he didn't make that call when it's not his call to make. As we talk about blown calls or just missed calls by the officiating crew, which we all know they're going to happen, and it's not y'all aren't out there trying to blow calls or trying to mess up, you're human. How should we as coaches handle those issues? Well, the, I'd say the most important thing is to try to do it, and I know this is hard, but to try to do it in a calm manner. Because if the coach is obviously excited and agitated and his voice is, is up, it's human nature. Somebody who's talking to is going to get defensive. Even though we try to tell the officials not to, not to get defensive, uh, it's just human nature that they're going to get defensive. And maybe they get emotional in return. Their voice goes up. Their tone goes up. 
And pretty soon we're not even talking about the call anymore. We're just, just mad at one another. Right. So I say the most important thing is to try to do it in as calm a fashion as possible. And I know when you're trying to do something before the next play, that's not always possible. But unless you're talking about a, an enforcement thing, if it's a judgment call, they're not going to make a change to that anyway. So it doesn't really matter if you get that point communicated before the next play or not. Now, if we've enforced a foul and you think it's been enforced incorrectly, well, we do need to get that correct before the next play. And there's a, there's a procedure in, in the book that allows for you, if you think that's happened, to call a timeout. Uh, we discuss it. And if we say, you know what, coach, you're right. We had a brain fart there. Uh, and we, we said we, we did, we did it. We enforced it wrong. Just now we're going to enforce it. Then that timeout's not charged to you. Right. I would say that's probably the most important thing is to try to do it calmly and don't, don't be general about it by saying that's a horrible call. Right. Tell us specifically. Right. 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 Yeah, the hold was, that was not holding right or there was holding of my receiver on the other side of the field that this doesn't it doesn't help us understand what your objection right. is if you just say it's a horrible call right so if i'm the if i'm the d-line coach and i and i maybe there's a non-call on a hold is the head coach the only one that can take that to the official to, to, to talk about that are officials not instructed to talk to assistant coaches? Is the head coach the only guy that they're going to talk to or explain a call to? They'll talk to, they should talk to any coach. But the problem is if you have multiple coaches trying to talk to him while he's trying to officiate, he can't, he can't officiate well and he can't communicate right. well. He can't right. do either one good. So most coaches that I've worked with, in most cases, they don't want the assistants talking to us. They prefer to do it themselves. Right. Uh, now, if it's something specific and then the head coach says, well, go explain it to him because maybe you're hearing it on your headphones right. from your guy upstairs. Well, fine, come in and tell us this is what you're seeing. But if that's going on, we don't want the assistant and the head coach there both in our ear because then we right. can't hear either. Right. Besides, besides one at a time and remaining calm, if you were to give advice to some coaches about how to just work well with their officiating crew, what are some tips or some advice that you would give coaches in dealing with officials? I've always, it's always seemed to me that if a coach knows my name and knows the name of the guys on the crew and calls us by name, it, that seems a little bit more personal and I don't want to say friendly, but it just it makes it a little little less formal, and uh, we tend to respond probably better if we're called by our name than if we're just called a ref or whatever you do. Don't ever say "Hey, Blue." Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely worse than saying "Hey, Coach." Right, for sure. That would be uh, the one thing I would say is to call us by name, and then if you're the home coach. Try to make sure that you've got things taken care of for the crew. I know you personally don't do it, but have somebody on your staff. Make sure that they have a safe parking uh, for them to, to park. Uh, they have a good dressing and showering area and that they basically feel welcome there. You know, some places do things differently than others. Some do a whole lot. Others do nothing. Uh, but it just makes the crew a little more at ease if they feel like they're welcome in the facility and, and it looks like they're being taken care of. Right. Also, if you know, there's going to be something out of the norm that's going to be happening at your game, you got somebody skydiving in with a ball or some special ceremony. And you know that beforehand, it's good if you can communicate that to the referee before they even get to the game site. So they know about it. It doesn't uh, take them by surprise when you, when you drop it on them. For sure, for sure. I, I know that communication is always appreciated on both sides. And it sounds to me like, hey, some snacks in the uh, in your changing room and ice chest of Dr. Pepper's can't do anything but but help when taking care of those officials. Just makes you feel like you're welcome there, and that they you know they care about that you're having a good experience there as well. Right. Of course. Of course. Let's talk about this. 
we haven't even gotten, you know, you know, scratched the surface on all the things that we want to talk about. So this is definitely one of those conversations that we're going to have to break up and, and extend into a later episode. But I do want to talk about this because you brought it up earlier in today's episode, and I want to talk about it now. Uh, there is a real uh, official shortage. So shortages in, in, in finding quality officials is a real issue affecting our game. So how, is, how can we as coaches help with that issue? I'll say a couple of things. The first thing is, you you know, you have guys that even after they've graduated, they hang around. They want to be a part of things. Uh, they come to your practices. They come to your games. They talk to you. They talk to your players. They clearly want to stay involved with the game. Those are the kind of guys that we could make uh, good officials out of. They want to be involved. They, they've had some experience in football already. And so... It's great that you have them around your, your facility, but tell them that uh, there's more they can do. They can be a part of this uh, and, and encourage them to join their local chapter and uh, and be a part of what we do. In addition to just being part of the game, they're going to get paid for it. So that's a little extra spending money for them. Right. And then the second thing, and it's sometimes our problems are more about retention of officials than actually recruitment. We have some areas where we do a pretty good job of recruiting. We just can't keep them. And they're leaving for many reasons, but the, probably the most frequently given reason is because they, they think they take too much abuse. So we just say, especially, again, at the lower level, your sub-varsity, junior varsity coaches, they need to understand that uh, if these guys feel like all they're doing is being abused, then a lot of them are not going to stick around. Right. They're going to right. leave after a couple of years. And then, you know, that's, you're going to just keep getting new people out there. You're never going to get experienced guys. And then eventually you're going to have a lot, a lot fewer experienced guys at the varsity level. And that's going to be a right. major problem. Really. Uh, and we know this as coaches that we're doing our game, uh, truly are doing our game a disservice when we ride the officials and abuse those guys, because, Without without y'all, we, we wouldn't have a game. And and again, we have to remember that our players are going to take the cues take cues from us. And if we're constantly in on the officials and and John Adam and those kids are going to think that it's okay to do that, and that just creates an unhealthy environment on the sideline when really we should be trying to work together. And obviously, there's going to be bad officials, just like there's going to be bad coaches and guys that are there for the wrong reasons or or, or whatever. And and we have to just learn to deal with that and deal with that in a way that uh, reflects well on our school and, and sets a good example for our kids and, and, and also takes care of our game and ensures that we have plenty of quality officials to work games. Yeah, that's very well said. I think we could make you a spokesman for our association. <laughs> that's exactly the way we feel about it. Well, look, I, you know, the guys I coach with know that, that, I haven't always been the kindest official. I try to, you know, one of the things I try to do is I try to do inject a little bit of humor, especially in tense moments. That's just sort of my way of doing it, you know, with that official. Sometimes it works, sometimes it lands, sometimes it does not. But that's sort of, I guess, my way of sometimes cutting the tension a little bit is is throw a little humor in there when I can. Uh, sometimes it's easier than others. But, uh, Mike, this was an, a great conversation. Like I said, we didn't get through halfway half of the things that, that I had typed up to talk about. And so we're definitely going to have to bring you back on maybe towards the end of the summer as we get ready to gear up for two-a-days and the start of the football season. Talk some more about uh, how us as coaches can work together with officials. But I want to thank you so much for taking time out to come and share your knowledge with us and, and clarify some things uh, for us as coaches and just want to thank you so much for you and, and all the, the officials out there and what you do to make our game so great. Coach, thanks for, for having us here. We Like I said, we want to take advantage of every opportunity we get to communicate with coaches in a, in a positive manner, and this is one way we're doing it. Um, I'm going to give you my contact information, so if anybody wants to contact me for some specific questions, I can try to help them. Perfect. Perfect. Well, look, coaches, check out uh, – you can check out Mike's contact information in the show notes. So be sure to do that if you want to get a hold of him uh, and ask him questions specifically. Mike, where else can coaches go if they're wanting to uh, find some clarification on rules? Uh, you can go to our association website, TASO, T-A-S-O, .org. We have quite a bit of information out there. Of course, all the sports are covered. 
but uh, there's a link just for football. You can go there. We have some information there. That's probably one good place to go uh, to start with. There's a bunch of social media sites on Facebook and just websites for officials. Some of those are good. Some of them not so good. So I use caution from yeah. taking any of that stuff there right. and uh, taking it to the bank. I want to be sure that whoever gives you an answer is somebody who you know and who you uh, you trust there give you the right answer. Well, perfect. Well, Mike, that sounds good. And, and I look forward to uh, bringing you back on later in the summer. We can get a little bit more into this and, and talk about some more rules and things and, mm-hmm. and things that we as coaches need to know about officials so that we can in turn improve that relationship and, and help with the, uh, the issue of official shortage in our game and make our game better. I look forward to it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Great stuff from Mike today. If you want to ask Mike a question, or want clarification on the upcoming rule changes for this year, send Mike an email. His email can be found in the show notes of this episode. Our quote of the day comes from James chapter 1, verse 19. It says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Hey, I tell you what, if we can remember when we're talking with those officials to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry, you never know. Those officials... They might keep those flags down in their pocket, but you, coaches, you, you keep your pads down.